0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: Hello, I'm Dave Berry, and I am fascinated by my next-door neighbour. His name is Neil Srinivasan, and he's a leading cardiologist. Whether it's when we're taking our kids to the local park or sharing a pint at the local, I've always been left with more questions about his profession than I've had answers. In The Doctor Next Door, I'll be asking Neil the burning questions that keep me up at night, dissecting medical myths under his watchful eye and doing my utmost to learn more about an industry that is quite literally a matter of life and death. But this podcast isn't just here to feed my own curiosity. No, I want you to be involved in these conversations as well. Let Neil be your doctor next door also. So, if you have any questions or stories, send them to doctor at right now. Uh oh, here comes medically trained trouble. Neil! Hi, David. Good to see you again. (laughs) How are you? I'm good, thank you.
2: I bring a great cake, banana bread. Ah, banana bread. Something for us to munch on.
1: So this is from, and we won't name them. We don't want to be those guys early on into our podcasting career, Neil. We won't give them a free plug, but this is our local bakers. And this place is like a star attraction. Absolutely. I mean, it's a local, um,
2: we call it village, I suppose. It's a little pocket of london yeah but it, it's a it's a, a
1: village legend really and, and so um, to get the banana bread from there oh yeah only 14.99 a loaf I, is fantastic only for 14.99 a <laughs> loaf and uh and
2: as we were saying that it's it's interesting because we have a, a turf war of bakeries in our area <laughs> In the local area, they call it... The Great
1: Dough Wars of 2022. (laughs) Exactly, of 2022.
2: They call it the Sourdough Wars, actually. (laughs) And um, it's expanded. So it started with, obviously, our legendary and famous baker, who'd been going since the 1860s, actually. They proudly
1: display they've been around for 200 years. Absolutely.
2: And they have this beautiful old gate where the horses and carts must have come with the flour to go to the back of the the building. But then uh, a usurper came into town. And now the queues are all at the the aforementioned, who we shall not name, Sourdough (laughs) Institution. So there is huge village upcry with regard to what is happening to our former historic institution. And to make that even worse, David, we've now had a new upstarting town, which is a chain. Yeah, I saw a chain, no less, in a town like ours. Yeah. Would
1: you believe? And his name doesn't even begin with G. Yeah. Um, the thing is, you know, because I'm a newcomer here, yeah. so I still feel like a bit of a newcomer because when we moved here, we all went into a lockdown, so yes. I didn't get to see what anything was like for the best part of a year. Yeah. And... Around here, people love their sourdough, Absolutely.
2: Don't so the level of, as you say, Middle England snobbery and... Um, oh, it's you know, awful to watch. Yeah, I saw someone with one of those
1: canvas bags that said, I heart sourdough yes. on it the other day. Yeah,
2: exactly, exactly. <laughs>
1: Move over New York, it's
2: sourdough. Exactly.
1: Um, one of the other things I noticed when I moved to this particular part of town is, and we've touched on it before in the podcast, is that people feel that they can just chuck any old tat out on the street, they can put a sign on it, and therefore it's not fly-tipping. And you have done a great job as an established member of the community here and a friend to kind of change my mind on this. And I and I love and am passionate about upcycling and reusing things. And I'm starting to look at the objects that we see in our local area that have been cast aside by our neighbours and friends and passers by, not as tat, Mm. but as useful objects. And so last week I laid down a challenge, Neil. You had to find something, I had to find something. We bring it to the table. We'll then photograph this for our socials at dot nextdoorpod, and people will vote on who found the greatest discovery. And unlike with my medical training, I am feeling very confident I have won this.
2: <laughs> well, brilliant! You should say that, David, because just in time. I've- <laughs> It's all about the theatre of the mind for you, I've just brought in two fantastic little chairs that Rufus, my son, had found right, and thought they would be perfect for Evie and Rufus to sit in, in your house and play with. Look at these beautiful chairs, David. You definitely need them in your house, don't you? you well,
1: it's, I'll have to check them for woodworm, but it's nice of you to, uh, to think about the kids, I suppose. That is a bonus point. You're plucking at my heartstrings and you are a cardiologist. However, uh-huh. you've got something for our kids... I've got something to put the big kid back in your life. da 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 I present to you, plucks from a hedge at the end of our road, a skateboard. Amazing, you found it. I've been looking for it for so (laughs) long. Now, as men of a certain age, if I ever see you on this, like the object itself, the wheels would have come off. So please, just for display purposes only. But there you go, my friend. Oh, fantastic. It's a beautiful board with no wheels. Thank you
2: so much. It reminds me of 1996 all over again.
1: So, the street swag competition is on. Neil has brought a couple of kiddies' chairs to the table. I bought a wheelless skateboard. We are going to post a picture of both at Doc Next Door Pod. Go check it out, and in a couple of weeks' time, we'll be revealing the winner of the competition. Okay, Neil, listen. We've talked bread, we've talked baked goods. We've talked a tat in the neighbourhood. Let's get down to business, shall we? Two things have come together to inspire my first little question for you. Uh, The first is, it's Milan Fashion Week. And secondly, one of the things that has caused the biggest stir on our socials is you dressed in your what could only be described as Ewok jumper. Hey, David. I love the Ewok jumper. (laughs) I've not come here to badmouth the Ewok jumper. So I'm curious to know what does one of the UK's leading heart surgeons wear to work and what kind of attire do the other guys wear? So, great question, and now you see it. (laughs) I pretty
2: much, when I go to work, I don't really dress up anymore. Things have changed. Right. So I pretty much put a pair of trainers on, a tracksuit bottom, and a T-shirt or a top, and my coat, and I drive to work. And now I think that's probably changed a lot since COVID because we pretty much all wear scrubs at work to try and keep ourselves hygienic, try and keep ourselves clean. Particularly at the the prime of the pandemic, people were very cautious to not be wanting to bring in clothes that potentially contaminated, but also not want to take home clothes that were potentially contaminated. And so I got into the habit of just wearing scrubs every day and they're so relaxing and so comfortable. Also means I don't have to worry about, you know, ironing my trousers and ironing my shirt. But times have changed. You you make a good point. So around 20 years ago, when I was sort of starting, we used to wear a full shirt and tie. And sometimes you tuck your tie in and things and make sure it's not hanging around. But otherwise, it was that and smart trousers. And times before that, in fact, just as I was starting, we used to wear white coats. And they were really handy. We had these big white coats with loads of pockets. And we had this book, we call it the Cheese and Onion. It's a sort of looks like a cheese and onion packet crisps is sort of yellow and green and it had everything about medicine so if you're a new junior doctor and you're like right what was that thing again you quickly look through your cheese and onion like a bible and go wow. right this is how you do it and it had these bullet points so You have your cheese and onion in one pocket your stethoscope in the other and you'd have a white coat and in those days because i don't know if we, we mentioned before about the long shifts and and, and as a junior doctor first year starting they were long hours, and we'd do, you know, seven days in a row. So I used to live in the hospital. There was some accommodation that was sort of attached to the hospital. You could sleep and hear the hospital generator. You could sleep and see the ward and wave at you know, the team. It was like that. <laughs> okay. And, um, and uh, so on the way out, as you we went down, this is St. James's Hospital in Leeds, we'd go down this long, steep corridor. There's a washing room. So there's a man or lady basically there. You'd hand in your white coat there. They'd you know wash it, and the next day as you walk back up that corridor to go up to the lift,
1: you'd pick up a new one. So that was how it worked. Do you write your name in it in crayon, like at nursery school, or no? No, so
2: they were all <laughs> just recycled. Get a small, medium, large, and yeah. yes, your They lot. were all recycled. But now, for example, in the states, people you know will write in the United States. They will have like you know their name embroidered on their white coat, for instance. Mm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> white coats are gone. For yeah. many reasons.
1: OK, now, before we now, get into those reasons, yeah. I have to ask, because this is one of the things i would written down here, it is, is not slipping on that white coat for the first time like a badge of honour, isn't it? The moment that a doctor has arrived that he or she feels like they've achieved something. And, and that, having that taken away from you, is that not frustrating or do you just move on? So I think nowadays people don't
2: care because they don't think about it. But at that time, because I was in the generation of the shift between... Mm-hmm today, no more white coats, said sister sort of thing on the ward. And it did feel like that. You're absolutely right. I remember being a young medical student. So there's also some etiquette with regard, or there used to be some etiquette with regard to medical student versus doctor. So when you're a young medical student and you come to that third year and you're going to your wards in Leeds or wherever it was, even in the States, you'd get a white coat, but it was shorter.
0: It was not as long to (laughs)
2: to show that you weren't like officially a doctor. And sometimes they had short sleeves. So your sleeves would stick out sort of thing. So to just highlight you as you're not, you know, one of the actual people in white coats who can do something. That's
1: bordering useful. on cruel. So like yeah. senior
2: doctors cutting your sleeves off effectively. Exactly. <laughs>
1: but as you can see,
2: that, that highlights one of the problems that we're going to talk about with regard to white coats and why they got rid of it, which is this hierarchical thing, making people stand out oh. to try and say that everybody's not equal at the workplace, that
1: kind of thing. You just um, give everybody sleeves and a decent length white coat. That's how you make it equal, well, surely. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Just Maybe... stop making the junior doctors walk around in well, like a little vest top Exactly. One.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it was slightly different in that sense. <laughs> and then when you became a doctor, you finally got your big long white coat that you could pick up from the downstairs washing room, you know, on the way up. And it was a big moment. For, yeah, I've really made it. It a real honour. And it was nice and warm as well, sometimes cold in the wards, especially in night shifts and stuff, you know, deep warm. Put all your stuff in there and things. And then... Around 2008, there came a period where hospitals were worried about the fact that we had too much infections in hospitals, MRSA, things like that. And we started to think about two things. The the concept that maybe what we're wearing is transmitting things. And they did some studies that showed, for example, that not everybody's washing their white coat in a timely fashion. Not everybody's washing, their ties are hanging around and they're touching the patient and their ties are brushing across one patient, going to the next patient. Your sleeves are long and you know, your sleeves are therefore full of you know, germs and dirt and then you're touching one patient and the next patient. Even ah. if you're washing your hands, you're not washing around your sleeves. It's stopping you washing your hands properly. So the white coat went out completely because of that and it's about MRSA and infection standards. And so now when we go in, even if you're wearing a shirt, for instance, you have to roll it up above your elbow. So uh-huh. bare below the elbows to wash your hands between each patient to reduce the risk of infection and i think that's a huge actually made a huge difference in yeah. terms of healthcare the the you know the rates of mrsa the cleanliness of hospitals has completely skyrocketed in terms of improvements
1: so people who like dress up for halloween in like the white coat because they want to be a doctor they're like 15 years out of date
2: yeah those days are over temporise people <laughs> especially in the uk i think some places in europe sometimes in 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 the usa that still goes on but in the in the uk nobody's dressing up in shirt and tie and certainly not in in a jacket anymore And it has some, as we talked about, hierarchy things. You know, everybody's equal. Everybody's job is important. The person who's, you know, making the cup of tea and bringing the sandwiches is just as important as anybody else Mm -hmm. on the ward. The person who's, you know, coming and helping the patient and cleaning them, getting them washed and dressed, just an important role in rehabilitating them and keeping them comfortable. So sort of removing that hierarchy and I think just, you know, making it more an open place to work in that sense.
1: So, doctor... Another week, another edition of the podcast, another three questions as I continue my medical training. I wanted to share a correspondence with you uh, that I got from uh, someone called The Sweary Stylist who messaged me via Instagram saying, this podcast is so good. It even got my 17 year old off his phone and we managed to have a heated discussion about the medical training and how many bones are in the human body. Thanks guys. And thank you, the sweary stylist. So you were bringing
2: families together, Neil. Yeah, exactly. Fantastic. It's like the old days. Everybody's <laughs> sitting down next to the wireless.
1: <laughs> exactly right. We're well, harking it back to a more innocent time here on The Doctor Next Door. You. Um, but you've got three more questions for me. I'm ready.
2: OK, David. Your first question is... Which part of the body would you find the loop of Henley? I thought that was on Brand's Hatch. (laughs) Exactly. Is it A, your ears, B, your kidneys, or C, your eyes? Uh, So that's. Not the first time I've
1: done this, but I'm just going to pick one of the
2: three, I think. Okay. Loop of Henley, A, ears, B, kidneys, and C, eyes. Okay. Could you spell it for everyone? So, loop, obviously, and yeah. off, and then it's H-E-N-L-E. Got it. OK. Then the next question is a true or false question. OK. Coconut water can be intravenously dripped straight into veins to treat people suffering with severe dehydration. Is that true or is that false?
1: Now, I have heard that urban myth for so many years now because working in TV and radio there was a period of time about 10 years ago where you couldn't move for coconut water it was in every fridge on every set in every studio and it was inevitable that somebody in the room was saying did you know that coconut water can be used in blood transfusion uh, so, I, so but I can't remember if it's true or if it's an urban <laughs> myth
2: <laughs> okay your third question is the stapedius muscle is the shortest muscle in the human body but where is it? Is it in your toes, your ears, or your stomach? That's the stapedius muscle. It's the shortest muscle in the human body, but where is it? A, toes, B, ears,
1: C, stomach. Oh. I've got my three answers written down. I hope you've got them where you are. I hope the sweary stylist is sat once again with her teenage son playing along. And we're going to get the answers right after this, another podcast from the producer of The Doctor Next Door that we think you're going to love. Hello, I'm Jess Phillips, an MP and now for the first time a podcast host. I've always been a prolific letter writer, both the good and the bad kind, and know the power of putting words to paper. My podcast is called Yours Sincerely. And in each episode, I invite a guest to celebrate three people that mean the world to them. Someone they love, someone who's no longer around, and someone who doesn't realise how significant a role they've played in their lives. For each guest, they'll reveal why they mean so much to them, and how they would sign each letter off. So with that, I'll sign off with yours sincerely, Jess Phillips. I hope you get to enjoy an episode of my podcast soon. Hello and welcome back to Doctor Next Door. Now, before the break, Dr. Neil asked me three more questions from the world of medicine as I continue my medical training. We know you love playing along where you are and it's time for the answers, Doctor. Remind us of question one, please.
2: So if you remember, David, your first question was, which part of the body would you find the loop of Henley? Was it A, the ears, B, the kidneys, or C, the eyes? What did you go for?
1: Based on uh, sometimes maybe going a little too far while celebrating, parts of my kidneys have felt like they're doing a loop the loop the Henry. So I've gone for kidneys. Oh, David,
2: you've definitely got a career in nephrology in you, surely. That's very good. It is the kidneys, indeed. Well done. I'm so pleased so, about that. And, and the loop-de-loop loop as well was very good. So it, it describes it very well. The loop of Henley is a long U-shaped portion of the tubules, so the little pipes that come out after it, within your kidney. So your kidney's full of these filters. The blood basically is filtered through these little filter sacs and then the fluid in there goes through this big loop. And within this loop, the function there is to basically reabsorb lots of water and salts and other such things. And so you find the loop of Henle in lots of reptiles and birds and mammals. And the function is basically to reabsorb water while allowing you to pee out all of the toxic chemicals that are part of your blood. So it allows you to detoxify but save water so that you don't become dehydrated as easily. And it was first discovered by um, a German anatomist, actually. He was dissecting within the kidney. And so his name was Frederick Gustav Jacob Henley, Ah. and hence the uh, name Loop of Henley.
1: Ah, the Loop of Henley, and getting me a point. So thank you, Herr Henley.
2: Mm -hmm. Okay, your second question was a true or false one. So 50-50... Yeah. And you're already doing very well with your medical training. It was about coconut water. And the question was, coconut water can be intravenously dripped straight into your veins to treat people suffering from severe dehydration. So it's very kidney based today.
1: Um, So I said that one of the big rumours rolling around the world of television and radio for quite a while was that it could be used because coconut water just suddenly seemed to be so on trend for a period of time. Like sourdough itself. Exactly. Yeah. Um, So I've gone for true. Oh, very good.
2: Yeah. Two out of two, yes. David. Off you go to, to, to <laughs> transplant medicine, one and two on call, no sleeps. Helicopters in the middle of the night to retrieve an organ. This is this is for you. I'm ready. Yeah, exactly. Um... So it's absolutely true. So assuming everything's sterile, in areas of the world where coconuts are plentiful, the advantage of sterility and the availability make coconut water theoretically feasible for hydration of patients with severe gastroenteritis when conventional fluids are not available. And there's also evidence of coconut uh, water being used as a substitute for plasma because it's quite thick and so therefore gets your blood pressure up and pulls things in, you know, keeps you retaining water during blood transfusions in World War II. So where we're fighting in sort of, you know, the Far East and so on and coconuts were in abundance, it was used by the military to try and rehydrate people. I wouldn't advise people potentially trying to no. put it into their veins, you know, from, yeah. from home. Good advice. Maybe, maybe just drinking some and, you know, trying to be like the rest of the trendy me do, like you.
1: Personally, I, I wouldn't recommend drinking it. I think it's <laughs> disgusting, but there
2: you go, that's a little sidebar for you there.
1: Um, okay, so I'm on for three out of three. You're doing really well. Oh,
2: okay, here on. we go. This is a big moment. How's he gonna get the golden star? So the last question is the muscle. stapedius muscle. S-T-A-P-E-D-R-U-S. It's the shortest muscle in the human body, but where is it? Is it located in the toes? Is it located in the ears? Or is it located in the stomach?
1: So, as it's the shortest muscle, for me it was a toss-up between the ear or the toe. And I've opted for... Please. I've opted for the toe.
2: Oh, David, mm. I'm sorry, it's wrong. I
1: thought you were going to X-factor
2: me at least no. there and say that I
1: got it right. No no, no messing around no, with not. you, is there? No messing around with me. <laughs> you get it wrong, you get it wrong, You get man. it wrong, <laughs> you're out of med school, that's how it goes. It's a, it's a what is word. it? Is it the ear? It's the ear. Oh! You were
2: close, though, and I like your strategy. You, you would be very good at medical school, because the key is to, to, to narrow it down, isn't it, where you don't know the answer, so that's good yeah. MCQ techniques. So yeah, it's a, it's the smallest muscle in the human body. It measures about six millimeters in length. It's located in the what's called the tympanic cavity in the middle ear, and it, its role in the back wall of the middle ear is to help in terms of how you hear sound and how the bones move to transmit sound. Um, and it extends forwards, ex- attaching to the neck or the head of the stapes, which is another bone that sort of moves around there and helps you uh, hear through vibration.
1: Uh, Well, I'm not happy to hear that I've only managed to get two out of three. I thought I was going to get a full house. I hope you guys did better where you are. At least I hope you learned something. In each episode of the podcast, I'm going to come to Dr. Neil with a burning medical question. From the remarkable to the, as some people have described, ridiculous. We're going to get to the bottom of some of the biggest medical intrigues. Now, earlier in this episode, we were talking about how the attire that you wear as doctors has changed over the years. In previous episodes, we've touched on the fact that there was a link between surgeons and barbers. And so the burning question for you today, Dr. Neil, is... What was it like to be a doctor in medieval Britain? We're talking the Middle Ages, 5th century to 15th century. How do you think your day would have looked as a doctor had you been around back then? So, really good question, David. There's <laughs> a
0: lot, to cover, there's there, a lot to cover there? There's a lot to cover
1: there, exactly. I think this is,
2: this is us plugging our new TV show, right, or something, in the future. Yeah, Some... yeah
0: we'll
1: be walking across a coastline soon, Yeah, exactly, too. yeah, exactly. One of those, yeah.
2: So in the Middle Ages, obviously, there was less regulation in terms of control. Anyone could claim to be a doctor or potionist or anything like that. And the traditions of medicine were still very much rooted in the stuff that had happened in Greece, so Greek traditions. And so when they thought of the body, because they didn't really have much in the way of understanding of the human body, and for a large part of the Middle Age, we didn't really dissect the body to understand the body and how it works. And so we thought of the body as four humors. So you had yellow bile, phlegm, black bile, and blood. Those were the four things that the body was thought to be. I'm not having your
1: breakfast while you listen to this episode (laughs) of Doctor Next Door. Exactly. Okay. So, and it was it kind of as simple as that. Then it It was broken down into four.
2: Just broken down into those four things, and most diseases were thought to be caused by an excess of blood. So bloodletting was seen as the obvious cure for almost everything. So, well, so blood... this is the leeches come into play Absolutely, here. Absolutely, exactly, yeah. And, and so leeches or just you know, just cutting people and letting them drip with blood was often deemed as a sort of important treatment in terms of how you manage things. The other thing is that they thought that these four elements were controlled by... Well, they thought these four aspects were controlled by other external elements. So fire, water earth and air, a bit mystical, yeah. were then thought to then balance this. So the imbalance of these humours can then cause disease. And so that's where, as you say, bleeding, cupping, leeching, became you know, one of the most prominent things in terms of trying to treat people. And you can see how it probably didn't work. And also doctors were heavily mistrusted. It's where you know, the word quackery and things comes from. Mm-hmm. It comes from this kind of idea that people just made up stuff and... Thought it was related to that. Interestingly, ailments were also thought to be related to diet quite a lot. So, even in Hippocrates' days, the Greek days, he would say, Let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. So, what you eat determines your health. And, you are what you eat. What you are what you old school, you same. are what you eat. And it comes from Hippocrates, <laughs> from the Greek days, exactly. But as the medieval ages, Pass further, you got these trained physicians, and they started to learn the art of at least diagnosis. So we didn't have treatments. But the physicians, people like myself who you know, examine patients, see patients, not necessarily as surgeons, and we talked about that split before, they would then start to train in the art of diagnosis, observing a patient when they walk into the room. Palpating the patient, feeling the pulse. And urine was a very important aspect of medieval doctors' tools. So we would look at the urine, smell the urine, and sometimes taste the urine to try and make a diagnosis if there was too much ammonia in it or something what like that. What are you that.
1: doing over there, doctor? <laughs> Just having a drink. <laughs> Put the beaker down and get out. Oh, so what what were the kind of some of the the famous treatments. Because so, it's interesting you mentioned cupping there as well as bloodletting. The bloodletting has, has ceased to be. But I, I had a cupping session about 10 years ago for a bad back. Absolutely. So that's still around. So, so what were the treatments from the, that kind of medieval period? And which, if any, are some still around?
2: So, so as you see, that's interesting, isn't it? Because some of those medieval treatments, and particularly alternative treatments, still exist to this day. The other famous medieval saying was, how can a man die who has sage in his garden, which comes to the importance of plants. And it's, it's nice that you've come up with how do they treat things, because herbs, flowers, perfumes, they formed a large part of everyday life in the medieval world, but they were also a large part of all the treatments that we had in the medieval world. There's a Saxon book called Saxon Leech Book of Bald, wow. written in uh, 90, AD 1900 to 1950. It talks about cures for all sorts of ailments using vapour, herb baths, and uh, those kind of things. And that basically was what then resulted in the prominence in in most of physicians in the medieval days then harked from monastic culture, so the importance of monks. Because all monastic gardens were not complete without some medicinal plants, and the monks would grow all sorts of things. They became your local herbalist, your local apothecary. Um, And they developed herd gardens to use herbal cures, and uh, there are a whole load of books with regard to this. So books with regard to remedies, so headaches and aching joints, you would use rose and lavender and sage and even hay. Um, you'd use things like hemlock for aching joints, coriander to reduce fever. If you had a stomach pain or you felt sick, they might give you mint or some kind of balm. If you had you know, lung problems, you'd get licorice and cough and cold medicines, things that we use still to this day. They harp from those kind of periods of time. And uh, if you needed, had a big wound, and obviously wounds get infected, we talked about your love for putting your, your, your mouth into a, a, a splinter rather than trying to use a tweezers or something oh, that's yeah. sterile. And the <laughs> fact that, you know, you can get infected, they would clean these wounds with vinegar in, in the hope of trying to sort of cleanse the wound and Ooh. stop the, you know, the germs getting in there. And, and some of those do last till today. If you go to your you know, local boots, you'll, you'll be able to pick up some of these herbs for treatments and you'll certainly be able to pick up you know, cough medicines and things. And we still use things like you know, menthol and things for, for breathing. And I suppose it comes from that period of time.
1: What about the kind of the heavy lifting? What about the procedures where, you know, I've read that you just would bite down on a wooden block and they just hack away at your leg to get rid of it? That's, that was a thing that was practiced in this country and around the world for many, many years.
2: So that came later on because I think there was a period where people just didn't know what to do and didn't have much to do that they could do. A lot of that came from military surgeons. So, so I think there were, you know, barber surgeons who would go with military troops to try and help them treat these kind of, you know, awful injuries that would happen in these gruesome wars that they used to fight. And then that then would be passed on as they came back to treatments at home. But absolutely, there was not much you could do apart from, you know, tie someone down with some belts, bite on this bark as I saw your leg off. And most of the time that went really badly because of several reasons. You know, bleeding, yeah. we didn't have much that we could you know, use to tie off those blood vessels and stop the bleeding. Also, I think we never really understood the importance of sterility. So sometimes the saw or the sword or something was not really very clean. It's full of germs. And then there you are, you know, infecting this leg that you're then chopping off. Well a monk dabs you with some basil or something. Yes, exactly. Thank
1: you, my friend. This I, isn't going to help.
2: Exactly. Can I taste your urine, please? <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, now, whilst what you just said is gruesome, Neil... The most gruesome thing about this part of our conversation on the podcast today, and I wanted to just kind of round it up with this, is uh, when I was talking to the producers of this podcast about my idea about asking what your day would be like as a doctor in medieval Britain, one of the producers came back with the idea of like, what would Dave be in medieval Britain? And I swear to you, I got this on email just before we went to record today. The three suggestions they came up with for me, the host of The Doctor Next Door, was court jester, grave robber, or town drunk unbelievably gruesome I think we should get our
2: audience to, 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 to write in and decide and choose no, for you don't do you. that don't listen to the doctors it's fine I'd be a blacksmith just for the record <laughs> so I'll be the quiet monk pottering around my garden with the bees and we can decide if, if, if Dave is a you know grave robber I was thinking town drunk actually
1: what, why are you getting involved in this you're meant to be my friend unbelievable Doctor Next Door isn't just about Dr. Neil and me. We want you to be part of celebrating medical professionals and to help shine a light on all the incredible work they do. We'd love it if you would get in touch and share not only your questions and stories, but to also give a shout out for want of a better word, to anyone you know who is your hero of healthcare and you think they deserve some special recognition. So if you want to be part of these conversations and nominate your heroes of healthcare, then send us an email. It's doctor at nextdoorpod.com. or, of course, you can find us on the socials at nextdoorpod. And we love your correspondence and we had this come in from James. James says, hello, gentlemen. My dad had a double heart bypass not long after his 40th birthday due to a life of smoking, bad diet and little exercise. Three key things we've already discussed here on the podcast, James. In my mid-30s, I started to panic about my fate and lost six stone and took up running. I was running four times a week and was fitter than I'd ever been when one night I collapsed while walking the dog. I ended up on the cardiac ward and left three days later with a heart monitor inserted in my chest. I was diagnosed with bradycardia, doctor?
2: Bradycardia.
1: Bradycardia. My resting heart rate was mid-30s and my heart would pause occasionally while I slept. Eventually, I had a pacemaker fitted in the summer of 2019, just before my 40th birthday. The problem is I have lost all the confidence I had and I just feel so fragile. I'm currently two months into couch to 5K and I'm on track to be about 10 minutes slower than I was before my diagnosis. I've asked my consultant how hard I should be pushing myself but they only ever say 220 beats per minute minus your age. As a guide for my maximum heart rate, this would be 177 and would see me dropping even more pace. So my question is, I know I'm not going to be a top 10 finisher in my age bracket anymore, but how do I manage my condition and still take part in exercise that I enjoy? Thanks, James. Well, thank you, James, for getting in touch. And um, Neil, obviously you are perfectly placed to to answer James's question. How can James go about managing his life and feeling confident in doing so? So, yeah,
2: thanks, James, for writing in and sharing your personal story you've been through quite a lot and it must be so tough having to see that firstly in your family and then for you yourself to then have a you know different cardiac thing diagnosed and then to have a pacemaker so young so we should you know really commend james on sharing that story because i think that is really important to other listeners and other people around to show that there are other people who suffer these kind of things and there's an opportunity for you know people to share their experiences and know that you're not alone in that sense now What's interesting about James is a, is a couple of things. Firstly, James, you mentioned that your, your father had a heart bypass, and heart bypasses normally occur because there's poor blood supply to the heart. There are numerous reasons for that, mostly genetic and a lot of bad luck, but some of it is also the things we do to our own selves, things like bad diet and smoking, which contribute to that. And I think... You know, as a result of that, James has done the right thing. He's really tried to revolutionise his life. Losing six stone makes a huge difference to your life. And he's really probably improved his metabolic profile, reducing his risk of having poor blood supply problems to the heart. He should still make sure that that's checked, his cholesterol is checked, and that, you know, his symptoms are checked. But actually what's happened is that James has been diagnosed with a slow heart rhythm. And slow heart rhythms, called bradycardia, Aren't normally associated with poor blood supply to the heart necessarily. It seems like James's story is something slightly separate to what his dad has had before. And it sounds like the natural intrinsic pacemaker or the electrical system of the heart has resulted in in, in deteriorating or gone a bit slower at his sort of age. Now, there are a couple of important things, and we don't have all of that information. Firstly, it's not always that normal for you to have a slow heart rate at a young age, and there may be an inherited cause for that, and that perhaps needs to be investigated. It may have already been investigated in James's case, and certainly, you know, there may be more to the story in that sense. But to protect him from going really slow, the doctors have implanted, or the team have implanted, a pacemaker to protect the heart from going slow, to stop him having collapses. Having said that now... If James has fundamentally a kind of normal heart, which we, you know, we'd need to have an ultrasound scan of the heart to know the rest of the heart's normal, there's no other inherited condition, it sounds very much like it because his doctor has told him to, you know, exercise up to heart rate 177 then there shouldn't necessarily be anything that would stop James doing anything he wants to do. I've got patients, you know, with pacemakers who've run marathons, who've cycled London to Brighton, who cycle, you know, Tour de France-type routes in the summer, go up Mount Ventoux, those kind of things. The key thing with James is I think that some of this is confidence, and that's one of the big things, particularly with heart patients, is it, it scares you when something happens to your heart and you lose your confidence. And I think... What's happened is that he's had a time off off training, he's detrained and he's got such high expectations of himself in that I really want to get to the 5k at this kind of level. I would say, be grateful and happy that he's had this pacemaker and to actually then just set more achievable goals to go gradual. Don't expect to, you know, jump off the couch and get to 5k, you know, 10 minutes faster than you did before. Not that he's trying to, but that's one aspect The second aspect is that, so there's that detraining, basically, he's been away from training for a while, it's going to take some time to retrain, to retrain the muscles, to retrain the cardiovascular system. The second aspect is that if James's heart is actually relatively slow, or has become relatively slow, it might be that some of the struggling in terms of getting back to that original level is because, you know, the heart rate isn't going up at that right, correct level. There are some things you can do sometimes in pacemakers. You can reprogram the settings to suit more active patients. I've got patients, it's called rate response. So I've got patients, for example, who said, you know, I'm a really active walker and I just can't get up the hill as I would. And then you play with the rate response uh, and they come back in clinic and they say, oh, actually that's made a difference. Got up the hills a bit better. But it never really truly replicates what used to be the normal heart rate within, within a person. And so I would say to James, if your doctor has said, OK, you can go up to 177 beats a minute, fine. But I would aim to train around, you know, 120, 140 beats a minute and that kind of range. I don't tend to tell patients to really push it. And then allow your body to get fitter and fitter so that doing 120 beats a minute or 140 beats a minute, you can still get up that hill or you can still do that job. Just got to be more patient in terms of getting the rest of the cardiovascular system fit as a response to that.
1: Uh, James, thank you ever so much for your question. We really loved hearing from you and I hope that uh, what the doctors had to say has has helped in some way. I really do. And please do keep your questions coming. As I say, it's doctoratnextdoorpod.com. And that's it for this episode of Doctor Next Door. As ever, I'd like to say thank you to my co-host and my next door neighbour, Dr. Neil Srinivasan. Next time, Dr. Neil will again be guiding us through the wonders of all things medical. I'll have another burning question and we'll be answering more of your questions. Please rate, review and subscribe from wherever you usually get your podcasts. And if you do not know a doctor, then let Neil be your doctor next door. Now, I'm in dire need of a midday nap. So please, please, please get out of my house.